0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 12. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, Dr. Gerald Ozier will be taking us through the last couple of weeks in cybersecurity news with the Simply Cyber Report, and we will also be speaking with Jason Chan, former VP of Information Security at Netflix, about how we help build their security program from the ground up. I hope that everybody listening in is enjoying some downtime and taking a moment to reflect before gearing up for 2023.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jerry, and this is the Simply Cyber Report powered by Lima Charlie, the top cyber news stories you need to know about right now. If you or one of your clients is using the WooCommerce gift cards premium WordPress plugin, you may want to grab a pen and paper. The plugin has a vulnerability with a CVSS score of 9.8 actively being exploited in the wild. The vuln, which is tracked as CVE-2022-45359, has earned every bit of its 9.8 score, allowing unauthenticated attackers to upload files, including web shells. Once a threat actor gets access to the system, they then perform a full system takeover attack, which is a terrible day for any business owner, depending on their web ops, as part of their business operations. The issue is twofold here with the plugin, running with too high a permission and allowing cross-site request forgery. As mentioned, this is being actively exploited given its ease of exploitation, and defenders will notice unexpected post requests from unknown IP addresses in their web logs if under attack. Is AI going to replace cyber criminals? I joke, but Intel is showing automation is making threat actors even more dangerous. Fin7, the well-known hacking group that started with financial cybercrime, including cashing out ATMs, has developed an automated tool called Checkmarks. Checkmarks is designed to auto attack Microsoft Exchange systems, perform post exploitation actions, and grab enough data to allow Fin7 to understand their victims. Checkmarks leverages multiple known Exchange vulnerabilities, including the well known proxy shell, to gain access and then elevate privileges on the Exchange servers. Once on, internal scans are performed and additional endpoints are exploited and have web shells put on them via PowerShell deployment. SQL map is part of the toolset to discover valuable databases and exfil data of interest. Now, what's an interesting maturation of threat active behavior here, FIN 7 will compromise any and all exchange servers that it can and collect data. Then it has a team of humans in a second phase review all the data to determine what businesses it belongs to, how much revenue that business makes, and several other factors that weigh in to determine if they will actually move forward with a ransomware attack or not. The TLDR here is to either urge management or your clients management that on-prem exchange is not a good practice in today's day and at a minimum, patching for these most recent well-known publicized exchange vulnerabilities. It is also possible if your company isn't financially performing well, Fin7 will skip over you for not being worth it. Uh, It's not a strategy I would recommend though, but I do like to be comprehensive with the options. Analyzing malware and getting frustrated by it. Research from Trend Micro is showing that our old friend Raspberry Robin has a new feature and security researchers aren't going to like it. The USB delivered Raspberry Robin malware is designed to infect a system for ultimately being sold by initial access brokers. Like typical malware, the authors heavily obfuscate the code to make it difficult to understand what the code's actually doing. This version of Raspberry Robin though has two payloads, one designed to be discovered if the malware believes it's being analyzed in a sandbox. Now, I appreciate the level of effort the authors went through to make this fake payload look legit, including looking at the registry on startup to check for infection, pulling down an adware named Browser Assist. This payload has shellcode and a PE file format where the MZ magic bytes have been removed to kind of hide that it's a Windows executable. The actual payload, though, is obfuscated even further in the malware and contains an embedded Tor client for communication. Also, it installs two different registry persistent mechanisms to be extra sticky. I know in my hobbyist malware analysis activities, if I spent an hour pulling this malware apart and found the fake PE and the call to browser assist, I would think I'd figured it out and would document my results and move on. So be mindful of your malware out there that it could have a hidden payload that you're not seeing. For our final story today, threat actors are using HTML smuggling techniques to slide QBot malware into victim environments. And what is the first story in a long time that uses images in a cybersecurity event that wasn't steganography? Criminals are embedding JavaScript that builds Qbot malware on demand into Scalable Vector Graphics or SVG images, then placing those images in HTML files, which are then attached to phishing emails. SVG file formats leverage XML. The XML that SVG uses allows for script tags to be placed inside the file. Victims are tricked into opening the HTML attachment via classic social engineering techniques, and then the browser renders the HTML file, which in turn processes the SVG file for display, including processing the script tags, which is where the threat actors jam up a bunch of JavaScript. When the script is executed, it creates a password-protected zip file where the password is displayed to the victim in the HTML file that they just opened. And when they enter the password into the archive, the archive extracts an ISO file and introduces the QBot malware to the machine. Now, adding insult to the injury, QBot spreads by compromising the email client running on the victim machine to reply to an active email thread with the original malicious SVG-embedded HTML file. Pretty nasty business. Remember to check out simplycyber.io slash streams. I'm Gerald Lozier from Simply Cyber. Consider yourself armed with knowledge.
0: Up next is the interview with Jason Chan. Former VP of Information Security at Netflix. The interview itself is pulled from the Cybersecurity Cares Holiday Telethon that ran on December 16th, and the interviewer is none other than Nathaniel Nelson, tech writer for Threat Post and the Malicious Life podcast. So please introduce yourself. Sure.
2: I'm Jason Chan. I live in Marin County, California, with my partner Aaron and four cats. Professionally, I after a few years in general IT I spent about uh, 20 plus years in security uh, first half or so I'm uh, doing offensive work uh, kind of consulting consulting that kind of stuff and then the last half of my career doing uh, program building I uh, built the program or kind of led the program at VMware for a couple of years and then uh, spent the last 10 years or so at Netflix uh, retired last year um, since then I've been advising a few companies Um and then also an executive residence at Bessemer Venture Partners. And on the personal side, I like to do long distance running, uh, reading, uh, volunteering with Marin, Marin County Parks and the Marin San Francisco Food Bank.
3: Just, just give me a sense of how thin Netflix's cybersecurity was when you arrived on day one. Yeah, So I I
2: started in April 2011. So um, Netflix was a much smaller company then. It was about 500 folks. Uh, I I guess the company was founded in 1997. So it wasn't really a young company. It was just still fairly small. Um, There were a couple of really, really good folks in the IT team working security. Uh, There were a few folks um, in the device engineering team working on things like uh, DRM and device security. And then I, I kind of joined... I, I had prior, prior to Netflix, I was sort of in a leadership role at VMware, and I came over to Netflix actually as an individual contributor to help um, basically as they were getting started in the public cloud, starting using uh, Amazon Web Services, kind of think about security there. So kind of like the, the sort of think about product security, but I didn't really, um, it was really just me for the first year. I didn't do any hiring for about, I think about 18 months or so.
3: Just you? Like the, the team was non-existent? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of folks doing
2: IT security um, in the IT functions. I, I was in engineering. I was in a team called Cloud. I think it was called Cloud and Platform Engineering. It was, I mean, it was it was about 15 people at the time. So it was a pretty um, small folks. I think I think there was maybe 300 total in engineering when I joined, maybe 250,
3: something like that. Sure. So give me a sense then of... Why uh, Netflix would have had reason to have cybersecurity in the fr- I know it's a silly question, but you can imagine why hackers go after hospitals manufacturing. What kinds of threats does a, a streaming service face? What a hackers want from Netflix.
2: Sure. I I think you know the one sort of common issue any I would say any any company that's doing work on behalf of customers or have some sort of consumer relationship, it's you, you're going to have personal data of your customers. So I think that was that was always kind of top of mind from like a crown jewels perspective is just protecting the data that our customers entrusted us with. So their personal information, payment information, viewing history, things like that. Sure. Um, and then, um, then of course is streaming, you have, you have other people's content available. So you have an obligation to protect that. Um, I would say things changed a bit when Netflix went from being a basically distributor of other studios content to creating our own content. We, we basically went from, not being a studio, it's being the world's largest studio in like, you know, four or five years. And with all that production going on, um, there's a lot more, um, a lot more happening. So there was a lot of, and every production is like a TV show or it's a documentary or a movie. So you have, you know, dailies happening, you know, a lot of intellectual property going around. You also have like physical issues where you have people have access to celebrities, you know, they're trying to understand, What's the plot of the next season of Stranger Things going to be? You know those kinds of things. So it was a lot more, I guess, non-traditional, but essentially trying to trying to leak or get access to confidential information.
3: And then, where were the security gaps? Like, what was in those early days keeping you awake as your one-man show? Yeah, I
2: mean, really, when I was just me, it was. um, Things were were really moving so fast. um, These were you know early days of streaming. Um, you know, for folks that that may recall, you know, Netflix started as a DVD by mail company in the U.S. and then sort of opened, started streaming, I think in 2007 or 2008. Um, But really those first few years, it was, I think Netflix actually gave away streaming with the DVD plan for a while. Um, So as we were moving to the cloud, you know, there was, a lot of it was just around just kind of availability issues and just trying to trying to basically try to get things ported over to the cloud as quickly as possible. So, um, and, and it was so early on with AWS that there weren't really like, there was no cloud security market out in the commercial space. So anything that we wanted to do, we pretty much had to sort of invent or build on our own just yeah. trying to keep up with pace of the business.
3: Sure. Could you tell me about that? Because, um, you know, cloud security now is such like an, an industry, but back then if you're building on your own, like, did, you didn't have a guide, I assume. How'd you figure it out?
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, that was kind of one of the nice things of... Because um, one of the things I, I would say is like, if you sort of think of cloud as this new new era or this new model or um, whatever you might call it, and maybe the previous model was like on-prem, data center-based, it's not like we as an industry were doing great in those old days, right? Like we were, It's not like we were hitting it out of the park. So I, I honestly looked at, Uh, public cloud and an opportunity to secure the uh, basically a large scale consumer facing distributed system in the cloud is really a nice opportunity to kind of think differently and basically look at the reasons. Well, why do organizations move to the cloud in the first place? And can I leverage those reasons as part of our defensive approach? So, I mean, I kind of, it was, it was sort of like a nice uh, kind of, I don't know if I would say breath of fresh air or kind of a reboot just for myself career wise, just to go look at something different. So um, it was challenging in that there was nothing available, but I mean, I think, you know, engineers, that's kind of what we like, you know, we like to solve problems that have been solved. Yes.
3: Mm. And it's been, I don't know what, almost 15 years now, but could you like put me in the room with you an example of like the way in which that was like, like a challenge that you faced early on and why it was refreshing and how you like figured your way through it. Oh yeah, I mean, geez,
2: you know, speaking to the, um, you know, the the notion that there wasn't really a market, like there weren't tools you could go buy. So I think one one that's become pretty ubiquitous now is uh, CSPM or you know, cloud server, excuse me, cloud security posture management, and you know, that's basically just looking at your cloud config and trying to tell you, you know, what you've gotten wrong and. We, I would say we, before that market existed, we recognized that that was a capability we needed so we ended up building that and open sourcing that. That was basically like the industry's first CSPM. Uh, we had um, open sourced as security monkey and so that, that was the kind of thing where you know it was, it was um, fun to be able to you know in a pretty much unsolved space to just to be able to kind of like experiment. It's not that we were always right, but you know, every once in a while we would get something right and it uh, sort of proved itself long- term.
3: Yeah. Okay. And now that you're using like the the we pronoun, um, you're starting to build up a team, presumably from just you. Take me through the process as you become like a director and then a VP of of building your cloud security team there, and, and maybe a culture around it. Yeah. I mean, I would say. Um
2: is this is all sort of with the benefit of hindsight but when you're when you're in the, in the in the middle of things like you don't really know like are things going to be successful like so you're just sort of making the best decisions you can based on the information you have available um so i mean by the time i left um the team was about 150 um so you know i went from like 1 to 150 in about 10 years and you know the first first few years and i, I mentioned i didn't i didn't hire for my first year so um, you know, when I, the first few hires, uh, again, if you sort of put yourself, you know, if you can kind of get in the time machine, this was, you know, there there wasn't really a lot of cloud security expertise. Uh, we weren't really sure what we needed. So really our hires then were kind of generalists, folks that had sort of been there and done that. And just just a bunch of different things that were kind of open to a new challenge and weren't just looking to kind of take whatever they'd done at their previous employer and just replicate it at Netflix. So, um, you know, more generalists. Um, and then, you know, as you grow, as you get to like, say, 100, 150, um, you know, hopefully your company is successful and like he can sort of bear that sort of investment. But I would say the one thing is you you start to become more specialized, right? Because, um, you know, you need to focus on application security or cloud security or incident response or privacy engineering, those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're always trying to keep up with the business because it was just growing in, not just in size, but in complexity, you know, it was going international and it was, you know, there's all kinds of interesting regulations and, um, as we went um, global and there's different payment structures and as we built out the studio there was always like some new change to the business so um yeah so you know i would say that general trend of you know going from generalists to more specialists and trying to figure out like how do you how do you give everybody an opportunity to sort of achieve their career goals while also doing the right thing for the company
3: yeah it occurs to me that like you were early enough in the cloud realm that you couldn't have come up as like a cloud engineer, quote unquote. You must have been a generalist beforehand. How do you make that transition, and then how do you get other people to make that transition effectively?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I was at I was at VMware, and you know, VMware had kind of like hit that. I, get, I think they call it like the innovator's dilemma, where you're sort of you realize like what you built is sort of, you need to, you need to pivot. So they had made money off a hypervisor for so long and they knew that I think they had to go to the cloud, but they were really struggling to figure out how to get there quick. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I sort of had a sense that that was where things were going. So that's, that was really what motivated me to take the Netflix opportunity. Uh, For me, you know, honestly, it was like, you know, when you're in security or you're in tech, you're, career is pretty much driven by constant learning. So for me, I remember, I mean, I hadn't really used AWS much when I joined Netflix. It was just, honestly, I read the docs and I just like tested it out. You know, everything has an API just wrote code. And you know, it's, I always tell people it's not rocket science. You know, it's like, it's, it's just technology. It's like, if, if you're uncomfortable learning a new technology, it's probably, it's probably not the right business. Um, So yeah, it was pretty, I would say it's relatively straightforward for me. Um, I just, cause I, I, I think it just been, you know, if you're sort of learning new tech for decades, then it just sort of becomes another new way. But I think maybe the one big difference was, is like, yes, there are, it's, there are manuals and there are API calls, but is recognizing, well, why, why is this new model attractive to businesses? Like why are folks making this migration and basically making sure that you're embedding that motivation and that drive in the way you're thinking about security. So
3: yeah, no, I I, I take your point that if you're in tech, you're constantly learning and, and you're you have some sort of general knowledge, but I mean this isn't like learning a different programming language, it's like a different mode of operation. So were there any growing pains in your process, like things that took a little bit longer to pick up on for you or for the people working with you cuz you're bringing these generalists into the fields um because cloud feels very natural to me now and maybe i'm wrong but i would have thought it's more like a foreign concept back then
2: yeah no now I'm, I'm i'm straining to remember you know cuz it's yeah? like you you always look back you know in hindsight but um it was definitely a different operating model. I would say the big thing that was different with um, Netflix and the public cloud. And so, you know, when I was at VMware, in addition to running security, I also owned change management and release management. And VMware was, a, was an ITIL shop. And I don't know if you're familiar with ITIL, but that's like old school, like process heavy IT. And um, Netflix was about as far opposite as you could get. But what I realize is like when you think about ITIL and like change management and release management, it's like you, everybody has the same objectives, right? You're trying to run secure systems. You're trying to run available systems, performant, it, cost-effective. It's just that, you know, the old school way of achieving that was a certain level of very centralized governance, you know, a lot of gatekeeping. And then when you talk about cloud, it was much about self-service and basically trying – you're intentionally decentralizing governance, right? You want everybody to be operating independently. So, um, so that was, it was incredibly different, but I didn't, um, I mean, I thought that was kind of the right thing to do. And because in almost any business, like your biggest risk is you got to be in business, right? It's, it's a competitive risk. So if you're not in business, nothing matters, right? Security doesn't matter. So I knew for in terms of what I could do to help make Netflix be successful, it was to enable that amount of high velocity development and sort of concurrent, independent decision making, sort of make that as safe as I could. Um, so that was, and, and that's what you know. It's it's still the same objective, right? Trying to keep things secure, you know. But you got to do it in a much, much more high high throughput way. Like at, at, when I was at VMware, we would do monthly releases. And those would be downtime releases, like 18 hours of downtime to do a release. I mean, you can't even imagine doing that these days, right? Taking that amount of downtime. Whereas at Netflix, you know, we were, even when I started, I think we were already deploying, you know, dozens of times a day. And, you know, by the, by the, by the end of my tenure there, you know, it was more like it was many thousands of times, you know, production was being changed today. So it was really, um, it was quite different, but I, I mean, I, I, mean I, I embraced it. I thought it was the sort of right modern way to go.
3: Yeah. And I want to get into sort of how you and the the software side of Netflix overlap. But firstly, um, it's, it strikes me as a kind of parable of learning any new kind of technology system. What kind of people were you looking for on your team? What kinds of generalists, as you said, um, made for better hires uh, at Netflix? Yeah, that, that's kind of that's probably another good
2: point to sort of um progress on a bit, is that I think uh, one of the things that we also did, um, and I think it's become a little bit more normal, at least in sort of like Valley companies, is that really I was hiring software engineers from the beginning into security. Whereas, you know, historically, I think most folks in security were not necessarily software engineers. They may have been systems engineers, but they were primarily, you know, sort of installing and operating vendor provided systems. Um, Whereas, you know, in the cloud, when there was nothing available, you kind of had to do it yourself. So it was really kind of like creating a culture of building. And I mean, there were some net new systems, but a lot of it was just integrating what was there, right? Because if the cloud, everything is accessible or addressable via an API. It's the sort of like the defender's version of living off the land, right? You've got a bunch of information and context in your systems, but you have to be able to do some development to extract that and make use of it in a security context. So, um, yeah, so generalists in security. And, and uh, like I remember one of my early hires was, you know, he had studied security uh, at university, but had just been working kind of large scale um, distributed systems and sort of moved into security team that um, really helped bring some kind of rigor and discipline. Um, but also just that kind of experience. So that was, you know, trying to like pull pockets of um, sort of adjacent experience. If you think, well, yeah, back then there were no really experienced cloud security folks. So you bring folks from adjacent fields. And I would say one of the big, um, you know, traits that I always look for, and this is through the entire tenure, was really like pragmatism and practicality and, you know, being principled, but recognizing that, you know, in security You you can never do everything, right? You got to, you got to really pick and choose what you want to go
3: after. Yeah. And did you run into any challenges as you're sort of gathering all these people together and sort of trying to build an operation? um, Not even from the tech side, from like the business side of things. Um, What would you say was the thing that, that kept sort of at you? Yeah, honestly, I'd have to say
2: um, I I feel for other security leaders who sort of have problem getting support from their business. But, you know, honestly, I I never had any problem um, getting support or collaborating with my peers. They were always um, kind of quick and easy to help. Uh, but, But again, kind of like being pragmatic and practical. So. We, we really took that trust seriously. We didn't want to violate that. So we, um, like if we were going to ask somebody to do something, we had a strong belief that that was the right thing to do. So, um, really the challenge that we had from the business was just the growth, you know? So it's, um, cause you know, Netflix kind of started as a technology company. So kind of like very heavy Silicon Valley culture. And then when we sort of built a studio, um, you know, that's a Hollywood culture and, and like, Hollywood sort of entertainment culture versus tech culture. It's very, very different. So, um, I had to learn like as a leader and an executive, like how do I deal with say a creative executive, um, in a way that's sort of natural and comfortable and appropriate for them. And that's different from say, you know, an engineering executive and and my team had to do that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was really just the pace of the business. I mean, that's a good problem to have is if you're just dealing with growth and pace, but it's it's not easy. I mean, it's very, very like not just the scale of just the growth of the customer, but everything, you know, everything was changing all the time. Like you can never, uh, I think in the 10 years I was there, I never actually was able to meet all my hiring um, uh, targets, right? Just because it's, you know, security talent is so so hard to find. It's so hard to find good security people. It's hard to find good software security people. It's hard to find people with cloud experience and it's hard to find people who are pragmatic and practical and, and, you know, don't come from that kind of doctor no security mentality where, you know, they want to be the one that kind of says what can happen and and, and are not really in tune with the name of the business.
3: Yeah. And maybe I'm abstracting it too much, but uh, that security mentality, look, security people approach their jobs and, a certain kind of way, it's more conservative maybe than the Silicon Valley move fast, break things, especially Netflix is sort of like one of the big companies you think of with, you know, chaos engineering is like the epitome of moving fast and breaking things. Um, So usually, you know, you don't have that much, maybe in what ways did you and that culture uh, overlap Did it work? In what ways was it a challenge from a security point of view? Or was it just like seamless with the the hundreds, the thousands of deployments and you guys doing your thing and them doing theirs?
2: Yeah, I would definitely be overstating it if I said it was seamless, but I, I would say um, I certainly embraced that culture and I did my best to hire folks that would also do that. Um, but yeah, the, the chaos engineering, but, but it, it kind of goes back to what, what I was mentioning earlier, where regardless of how you go about, like thinking about governance or testing, you want the same outcomes, right? You want security, you want availability, you know, reliability and, you know, chaos engineering was just kind of a fundamentally different way of going about that. And, you know, for folks that aren't familiar, um, it started with my, actually a co an old ex-colleague, Greg, he, you know, had this idea for this thing called Chaos Monkey, where, you know, the idea was, well, what would happen if you put a monkey into a data center and they just started, you know, pulling out cables and turning off switches? Like, what would happen? Would your system, like, how would your system um, respond to that kind of, um, uh, sort of influence. And because, you know, in the cloud, in a large scale system, things are failing all the time. And if your system can't handle like network failures or hard drive failures, then you're going to have a bad time in the cloud. Um, so that, you know, chaos engineering was about how do you get those outcomes, but, and how do you test those outcomes rather than rely on like, Hey, some vendor says this is the way to create, you know, high availability. It's like, no, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to actually test it. And, you know, we were going to shut down data centers and we're going to shut down systems and see how your system responds. And then um, it'll either have a good response or not. And, you know, we built a lot of like institutional knowledge and experience and sort of, you know, the patterns of practices that are um, helpful for running uh, large scale systems in the cloud. And and as a security team, we did the same thing. You know, we had security monkey and exploit monkey and, you know, all of our sort of tools and automation were meant to sort of integrate um, with the production environment, with the systems that developers use.
3: Hmm. And are there any ways in which uh, the resiliency that you build through that culture and through that chaos engineering makes the job of security easier? or are we basically talking you about two different modes? Um,
2: you know it's it's sort of it makes it different. Um, I, I would say you know one of the things, and, you know, just to use a concrete example. Um, you know, one of the patterns that we had um, developed and really used from the very beginning was this idea of immutable infrastructure and sort of auto scaling. So basically with immutable infrastructure, at least the way that we were doing it, you know, once a system was launched, it didn't change like once it was running. So if you wanted to make a change, you actually had to sort of rebake your image and, and redeploy your system. And so that really like, completely obviated, you know, a bunch of sort of like runtime, you know, sort of patch management, like all that kind of stuff goes out the window. And instead you're focusing on keeping images updated and, you know, it just a kind of a fundamentally different approach to things like vulnerability and vulnerability match management and patch management, you know, like our systems, I think, you know, for a while, like the average, um, the average, like, Life's lifetime of an instance was only about 12 hours, right? So if an instance is coming and going every 12 hours, it's not like if you think about a lot of like on-prem data centers, you'll have systems that are around for years, you know, and, and so it's a totally different kind of um, operational model. So then you have to adjust security. So it was different, but you know, we were always looking for ways, well, how can we leverage, you know, what we're doing for reliability or for developer productivity for security? Basically trying to dual purpose, those kinds of things. That, that was one of the ways that we tended to get efficiency, was looking to see, like, how can we how can we take advantage of these things instead of complaining, like, oh, we don't have what we used to have in, in you know, the old data center. Market.
3: Sure. And, you know, w- we've been talking a lot about the, the early and mid days, but, you know, you were at Netflix for... What over a decade it must have been. Um, a lot has changed in InfoSec in that time, for sure. A lot has changed in Netflix, as you've alluded to. Um, in what sort of big, overarching ways did the nature of your work transform from when you first got there as the one-man team to the time you left last year? Yeah, I mean,
2: for you know, I would say for me individually, um, you know, just the way you spend time. Um, just changes you know you're sort of deep in the weeds for probably like the first half of the time like the first five years i was like really really involved and then you just you kind of by nature of it you just sort of have to up level a bit um, even if you know frankly like that was less comfortable for me um and you're just spending a lot more time with your peers and with with other folks kind of influencing and and really i mean i don't think netflix was different in this dimension but um you know once you become like an executive you're you you're sort of taken for granted that you that you control and manage your domain. And then it's really about, well, what additional value do you bring to the rest of the business? And I remember that was like kind of shocking to me when I first started attending like our ESAP meetings, like the VPN above meetings where, cause they would, they would want your input on like marketing strategy in Singapore. And at first I was like, I, I don't know anything about, them. but it was like, well, the idea is like, if you have these like difficult unsolved problems, if you sort of put some, you know, bright folks with, like context about the culture, you know, together in a room, you can have have good outcomes. Um, and, and I would say, yeah, I mean, the security industry has just changed. It's become so complex. Um, you know, the the big one for me was like this kind of like continuing divergence of like the skill sets needed for like what you might call CorpSec or like enterprise security, you know, EDR and, you know, third party risk versus like product security and software security. Those are just such big domains of themselves. It's almost impossible to get somebody who feels comfortable, like straddling both of those. So you just find so many more like folks who can just go really, really deep on things, it, which I, I liked. I mean, I was never, you know, I was always kind of a generalist and I would, I would I would hesitate to call myself an expert in any one of those things that, you know, it was just more of like having a sight of it all, but it just became so much more specialized.
3: Hmm. And only because we only have a minute left. What's something that you've um, you've kept with you since leaving just to leave Anybody out there who's listening to us now with some kind of takeaway for themselves?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess a couple of things. One I would say is like, you know, if you're in a leadership role, you want to have um, you don't want to have higher expectations for your team than you do of yourself. So like keep your expectations of yourself high. Um, and also one of the things I um, have really come to embrace over the years is like good leaders know how to say no. And like, that's what strategy is about. It's about limiting what you're going to do and about focusing and not just trying to take everything on. And, um, yeah, so I, that, that's always one of my like early good signals for, for leaders or folks who can, who can say no and, and don't feel like they need to do everything. So,
3: you know, could you, could you tell me just to give people a sense of like the, the full uh, transformation here, what Netflix cybersecurity looks like now, like how many people are working there in the jobs that you were doing on your own at, at the beginning? Oh, geez. Um,
2: Well, so I I took over um, parts of IT, uh, I guess, about three years um, with about three years left. Um, And so I I think I had about 100 folks working security, about 50 on IT. So I I imagine it's slightly bigger than that. I mean, I'm still in touch with quite a lot of the folks, but I've, you know, done kind of reorgs and sort of stuff like that. But I think it's, um, uh, and then also, I think that one of the real big things that has come up um, since I've left is games. So that, you know, there's always something new to work on. But Yeah. So, I mean, I I think it's, you know, a lot of the same folks are still there, but I'm I'm about a year and a half out now, so I'd hate to speak on their behalf.
3: Yeah, fair enough. Last thing I'm curious about, you were there for so long. Did you face any major, like, security incidents? Anything that, you know, was really, uh, really got to you? Um, You know, they were probably,
2: like, the biggest one that was, like, publicly disclosed. uh, Well, I mean, probably the biggest one uh, was um, we had basically a fourth party uh, security incident we had basically a vendor of a vendor yeah. um, was compromised and basically stole uh, I think like 10 or 11 episodes of the season of one of our shows one of our original shows so that was kind of gnarly and there was some ransoming involved and then You know, beyond that, we would have um, kind of spikes, especially as we went global, Um, a lot of like phishing against our customers, account takeover, you know, that kind of thing. We would every once in a while have spikes, but, you know, I'll knock on wood and say it was uh, thankfully, you know, in 10 plus years, there were no sort of major um, security.
0: And that is a wrap for this, the 12th episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. If you found value from this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you leave a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you are listening from. And again, thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.